The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure that we are prepared. Scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Scripture teaches that when there is unconfessed sin in the life, that this creates a breach of fellowship, a a breach of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in His teaching and sanctifying ministry in our lives. We don't lose our salvation, but there is a rupture of that rapport that the believer has with his heavenly Father. Therefore, we have the promise in Scripture that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we prepare for worship, or as we prepare for worship, part of our procedure is that we have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to Uh, Make sure that you are in fellowship with the Lord through simply admitting or acknowledging your own sins to God in the privacy of your priesthood. And then I will open in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, as we come together now, we bring our minds to the attention and focus on your word. For your word is central to all worship. For it is in your word that we learn who you are and what you have done for us. It is in your word that we learn how to think and how to properly interpret the details of life. And it is in your word that we come to understand that we are sinners without any hope on our own. But our hope is built, as the hymn says, on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And as we come to your word, we learn that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, and that by simply trusting in him, we have eternal life. We have this new life, and as part of this new life, we need to grow, and we need to uh, develop an understanding of who you are and what you have done for us. And so we come to worship you by submitting ourselves to the authority of your word. Now, as we study your word today, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we study, 
that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us and that we would be responsive to the challenge that is embedded in your word, that we align ourselves with your thinking, your plan, your purpose. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, as I've said before, should be understood as one unit. It is, it is an extremely dramatic scene in heaven. It is a future scene, for as we read in uh, the first verse, John says, after these things, that is, after the vision related to the second and third chapter, after these things, he looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and he heard a voice. The first voice which he heard was like a trumpet saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. John is being transported not only to heaven, but he is going to be given a vision of future things. So just as someone might write in a science fiction movie, although this is not fiction, John is being transported to a future Scenario in heaven, and he is going to see what will take place during the future time known as the day of Jacob's wrath in the Old Testament, the Daniel's 70th week, or what is more commonly referred to as the Great Tribulation. And the first scene, as we go through this future section of the book of Revelation, deals with what is going on in heaven. It is a heavenly courtroom scene. It is a scene before the throne of God. And chapter 4 is something like a playbook. You go to a movie, you will get a, uh, uh, you'll, you'll be given a, um, what do they call that, program. And in the program, there'll be a cast of characters. You're going to see who plays whom, an identification of the characters, and a synopsis of the various scenes. Chapter 4 of Revelation gives us that introduction to this scene. We learn who all of the major characters are, but the action really doesn't begin until the last verse, uh, last couple of verses, when the heavenly chorus of the four living creatures begins to sing in worship of God. But the main action takes place in the fifth chapter. So chapter 4 sets the scene, introduces the major players, Chapter 5 gives us the action. Chapter 5 sets up what is going to happen in the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, as we've gone into this, I pointed out the last time we were together that there were seven key identifications that needed to be made in Revelation chapter 4. If you don't know who the players are, you won't understand the significance of the action. Now, the first person that we are introduced to is the person sitting upon the throne. This is, we have identified as God the Father. The second group that is present in this heavenly scene are identified as the 24 elders. These are the raptured and rewarded church age believers who are in this scene sitting on thrones around the throne of God in heaven. We have yet to identify the seven lamps and the seven spirits of God who are before the throne, the four living creatures, the lamb who will come forward to take the scroll, and the seven seals on the scroll. These are 
foundational to understanding the events that transpire during the rest of the tribulation period. In verse 2, John is transported in the spirit and into the heavenly scene, and there he sees a throne set in heaven and on the, one, on the throne one sitting. And this throne is described in verse 4 as being surrounded by 24 thrones, and on these thrones 24 elders were sitting. They're clothed in white robes and have crowns, Stephanos crowns, indicating that they've already been rewarded. These crowns are of gold are upon their head. And then in verse 5 we read, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And this, as I pointed out the last time, is uh, representative of the outworking of divine judgment. In fact, there are four different passages we went through last time in Revelation that expand upon this. We have the verse here that mentions throne, lightning, Uh, sounds, thunderings, or noises, depending on the translation that you have, and then, or lightnings, thunderings, and then voices. The word voices is sometimes translated noises. It's a slightly different order in some of the passages, and this is due to some textual problems, and I pointed out that probably the best order is uh, lightnings, uh, let me see, lightnings, noises, thunderings, And then several things are added. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, we go to the next stage. And this occurs with the opening of the seventh seal. So each time we have one of these verses, it's at the next successive stage in the outworking of these judgments of God. In Revelation 8, 5, it comes at the end of the sixth seal. The seventh seal is opened and reveals seven trumpet judgments. And it is at that point that there is a silence in heaven, John says, for about 30, for about 30 minutes. And then we're told that the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were thunderings, noises, lightnings, and something new. An earthquake is added. Then the next time we have a series of judgments like this is in Revelation 11:19. This comes at the end of the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet uh, judgment contains the final series of judgments, the seven bowl judgments. So you can think your way through the tribulation if you can just remember that there are three series of judgments. Each judgment has seven. There's seven seal judgments, then seven trumpet judgments, and then seven bowl judgments. In Revelation 11:19, we're told that the temple of God was open in heaven. The ark of the covenant was seen in His temple, and there was lightning, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and then hail is added. So there's this intensification of the outpouring of God's uh, judgment. This takes place at the uh, beginning of the seven bowl judgments. And then the fourth mention of this series is, comes in 16.18, Revelation 16.18, which comes at the final stage. This is at the beginning of the what is known as the campaign of Armageddon. It's not a battle. It is a campaign made up of a series of battles. And at the time of Revelation 16.18, this comes at the... Uh, just before the destruction of Babylon. 
and there is a tremendous earthquake as we've seen before but if you look at verse verse 18 of Revelation 16 we read that there was a great that there were thunderings noises lightnings a great earthquake such a mighty and great earthquake as has never occurred since men were on the earth so it's while it's an earthquake as was mentioned in a Revelation 8:5 it is the worst earthquake of all time but the context itself uh, continues to add that Babylon is split into three parts and hailstones come down on Babylon that weigh about a hundred pounds each and then there is a massive plague. So each one of these judgments where you have this mention of the thunderings and the noises and everything is an, a successive intensification of the divine judgment. We see the uh, precedent for this set back in Isaiah chapter 29 verse 6 where Isaiah announces that they would be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire so this is a typical expression in scripture of the severity of divine judgment during this uh, tribulation period it will be a time of tremendous Tremendous destruction. So we come to verse, the second part of verse 5, where we read that there are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the text itself interprets the symbol for us that we see before the throne of God, these seven lamps, is depicted in this particular. Illustration. Now, the word that is used in the Greek for lamps here is actually the Greek word from which we get, uh, we derive our English word lamp, which is the word lampades, L-A-M-P-A-D-E-S. It is actually a word that should be translated a torch. It is not a word for uh, a typical oil lamp that would have been used, for example, to illuminate a house or illuminate a building. It was uh, more of a, of, a, of a torch. And these seven torches are identified within the context as referring to the seven spirits of God. Now, this is a reference and uh, interpretation that is somewhat puzzling to many people, and so I want to spend a little bit of time just reflecting upon uh, how this uh, phrase, how the Spirit of God is related to these seven spirits. There are, there are those who suggest that this, the, the root for understanding this is actually found back in Isaiah chapter, 60, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, Verse 2. So hold your place there in Revelation. We're going to go back and look at a couple of different passages in the Old Testament this morning. But I want to point this out because in nearly every, every commentary that you examine, you will find a reference to Isaiah 11.2. And for many years I taught that simply because that's what I had been taught. But I always had a certain unsettledness about this particular interpretation. And this is a passage that is a prophecy related to the Messiah. Uh, verse 1 of, chapter, of Isaiah 11 reads, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his 
roots, and that term branch is a reference to, it's a title for the Messiah, and is a reference to, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 2 says, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that is, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now count with me, the Spirit of the Lord is the uh, personage, of the third person of the Trinity, who will rest upon the Messiah. And then the rest of the verse describes the various aspects or attributes of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, that's one and two. The Spirit of counsel and might, that's three and four. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, that's five and six. So we don't get seven out of it. There's only six there. And what happens is many, uh, I think, have taken the initial reference of the Spirit of the Lord as an independent reference, but that is identifying the personage. The next six identify the attributes. So Isaiah 11, verse 2, cannot be the Old Testament uh, reference for understanding this particular image of the Holy Spirit as the seven lamps. We see this uh, representation several times in the book of Revelation. For example, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, when uh, John introduces the book of Revelation, he says in, this, in his salutation, he identifies himself as John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And of course, those are the seven churches we studied in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He then says, Grace to you and peace. And he says, this is from, and then he gives a Trinitarian reference. Now, this is extremely important to understand because there's been some confusion over this. I spent a lot of time on this when we, I initially taught this through this a couple of years ago. But it is a reference. First of all, this grace and peace comes, number one, from him who was, who is, excuse me, who was and who is to come. And secondly, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then third, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So it is a reference to the, uh, the Trinity. You have the Father referred to as the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, when it comes to that third statement, that the Father is the one who is to come, a lot of people have sort of balked at that, and, and some have said, well, the one who is coming, of course, is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you go and look in Revelation 21, what you will discover is that in the future, God the Father will come, and it is said there that he will make his abode with us. So that at the end of the book of Revelation, the one who is coming to make his abode with us, and there will be no more need for temple, there will be no more need for, for uh, 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 light, because his glory will illuminate the earth, is God the Father. So he is referred to several times in the book of Revelation, clearly as the one who is and who was and who is to come, as the one who is sitting upon the throne. And in a number of passages, you also have in that same scene, you have not only the one on the throne who was, who is, and who is to come, but you also have the Lamb. Now, the Lamb is clearly the second person of the Trinity. So these must be understood as two distinct personages, the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity. And before his throne, we have the Holy Spirit, 
the third person of the Trinity, identified as the seven spirits. Now, there has to be an interpretation given for this that we can go to in the Old Testament. You don't come to the book of Revelation and just see these symbols or images and just kind of contemplate your navel and say, well, I wonder what this could be. Uh, you don't just think, well, it's seven spirits, so seven is some sort of number and apply some sort of biblical numerology. This is the kind of thing that has historically been done that leads people to a lot of confusion when they try to understand what's going on in the book of Revelation. But as we have seen so many times in our study, the these symbols, these images that we discover in the book of Revelation are derived from the Old Testament. They come out of prophecies in Ezekiel, prophecies in Daniel, prophecies in Zechariah and other Old Testament books. And indeed, this particular uh, reference to the Holy Spirit as the seven lamps has its origin in Zechariah chapter 4. So let's uh, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. And we need to pick up just a little context in order to appreciate this. Now, Zechariah is called a post-exilic prophet. That means that he is one of three prophets that came to Israel after the 70-year period of captivity in the Babylonian Empire, the time when Daniel wrote and, and uh, the time of uh, the latter part of Jeremiah's ministry and the time of Ezekiel's ministry. This was a time after Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. and the Jews were taken in captivity to Babylon. They did not begin to return until about 536 under a leader known as Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a descendant of the line of David in the southern kingdom of Judah, and Cyrus issued a decree to allow Zerubbabel to begin to take Jews back from Babylon to their homeland promised by God to Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 12 and following. And so Zerubbabel began to take Jews back in, in about 536 B.C. And one of the first things they had to do, of course, was to clean up Jerusalem because it had been destroyed in the uh, conquest by the Babylonians. The temple, the first temple, the Solomonic temple, had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so they not only had to clean up Jerusalem, they had to rebuild it, and they also had to rebuild the temple. And this became a problem because there were uh, some of the Jews that weren't that interested in rebuilding the temple, just as there are secular Jews in Israel today who question whether or not there ought to be a nation Israel even in existence today. There's always some who uh, don't quite understand the plan and the purpose of God and set themselves against it. And this was a major problem. And as they tried to rebuild the temple, there were various forces of opposition. That's where uh, the book of Haggai comes in. And Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi are your three post exilic prophets, and one of the major themes in Ze Zechariah and in Haggai is to, re to encourage the people to complete the rebuilding of the temple, which they eventually did in 516. Now, that's the background for understanding this particular vision that we have in Zechariah chapter 4. 
And there's a series of visions that are given to Zechariah at the beginning here, and I don't want to take the time to go into all of that because we just want to pick up an understanding of this one symbol. It has its roots in this particular chapter. Verse 1 we read, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who's wakened out of his sleep. And he, that is the angel, said, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking. He's having a vision. He says, I'm looking. There's a lampstand of gold. This is a, a menorah that he sees, a solid gold menorah. He says, there's a bowl on top of it. And, and on the stand, there are seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. So there's a total of eight different eight different bowls that are filled with oil and illuminated. Now, normally a lampstand would have to have its supply of oil continuously replenished, otherwise the light would go out. But we have a unique situation in this vision. Zechariah says that there are two olive trees there, and it's as if they have a, a pipeline from the olive trees directly into the menorah. Verse 3, the two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and I spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these? In other words, Zechariah is asking for explanation of the symbol. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That is the key verse. What this is a picture of is that it is saying that it is the power of God the Holy Spirit who will ultimately bring about the completion of the temple. It must be done not in human power, but under the, through the energy of God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit would be the one to bring this about. But it is identifying the, this menorah and the oil as, as the Holy Spirit. Now skip down with me to verse 10, which I have up on the overhead. There we read, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven, that is, these seven lamps, rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So the seven are identified with the Holy Spirit, verse 6, and then it goes, the, past, uh, the verse goes on to say, they, that is, these seven, are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So there's a connection made in this passage between the seven lamps, the oil, the Holy Spirit, and this is de described as the eyes of the Lord. Whenever you see the term or the phraseology of the eyes of the Lord, that's always related to knowledge. Knowledge, and of course with knowledge you have two related concepts. Revelation, that is the, revel the part of the role of the Holy Spirit was to reveal knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, and the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the minds of man. And that ties back to this whole picture of a lampstand. What does a lampstand do? What does a torch do? It provides illumination, enlightenment. And so these symbols of the oil and the light and the torch, the lamp, all and the eyes all relate to the revelatory ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So when we come back to our passage in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 4, 
Verse 5, let's go back there. Second part of verse 5, we read, There are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So it is the Holy Spirit represented in, his, in the fullness of His ministry of revelation and illumination. Then we come to our next thing that we ought to identify. It's not part of the list that I gave you, but it's something we need to identify. Nevertheless, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. It is not a crystal sea. Okay, you'll, see, you'll hear that in some hymns. It is a sea of glass that looks like crystal. It is a, a sea that is glass-like. It, is, it could be translated as an adjectival genitive there. It's a glassy sea. It is, it is flat. You all have been, I know, places where you've been near a body of water and it's just been flat like glass, and you, you've used that imagery. Well, that's what John is saying here, is that there is a sea here before the throne of God. Now, what is the significance of this particular sea? Well, in the Old Testament, for example, in 1 Kings 7.23, the laver that was out in front of the uh, temple that where the priest would have to wash his hands and his feet was called the sea, the bronze sea. And it's a picture of the fact that there's something that separates man from God and there has to be cleansing before man can come into the presence of God. So the best explanation of this is that between God and his creatures, God is the one sitting upon the throne, there is this sea, this expanse. There is a, a separation between creatures and the creator. God is completely distinct. He is unique. That's, that's bound up in our idea of holiness. Now, that's holiness is one of those words that, that Christians use a lot, and they, they're not really sure what it means. It sort of loses its, its value over time because it's repeated so much. But the idea of holiness comes out of the Old Testament, and the root word there is the, based on the verb kadash, which has to do with being completely set apart to the service of God. Well, uh, when God is the focus of this, this verbiage based on kadash, he is the one that is totally other, totally distinct, totally unique. There is none like him. He is completely holy. And this, of course, begins to set us up for the focus of the doxology, the praise that is sung by the four living creatures in verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Notice again that it's very clear from this passage that when the uh, four living creatures are before the throne of who? It's got to be God the Father because the Lamb shows up in the next chapter. So it's got to be God the Father, and God the Father again is referred to as the one who is to come. He is the one who eventually will take up his abode, his abode with mankind in the new heavens and the new earth. So we have the this uh, sea like this this glassy sea that is like crystal and then we're told in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures and then again we have this same imagery of eyes 
that they're full of eyes in front and in back. Now, these living creatures are then described in verse 7. Now, there's a distinction made here, and we'll look at this in a little more detail in a minute. Distinction here between how these four living creatures are described and the cherubim in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2. In Ezekiel, the cherubs each have these four faces. But here you have four living creatures, each has a different face. So they're not the same as the cherubim or cherubs in uh, Ezekiel. The I-M ending comes from the Hebrew. It's simply a plural. So if you're, you can talk about cherubim, meaning more than one, or cherubs, meaning more than one, either way. So the first living creature is like a lion. He has the face of a lion. The second living creature has the face of a calf. In Ezekiel, he has the, the uh, cherubs have a face of an ox. Uh, the third living creature had a face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. What's interesting here is that the these angels, and this will just sort of tweak your curiosity a little bit because I don't have any more of an answer for this than you do, but what's interesting here is these four living creatures as well as the the, the, the faces of the animals on the cherubs in Ezekiel preceded the creation of the animal kingdom. You see, the angels were created first, then as God was creating in Genesis chapter 1, then he created the animals and he culminated with the creation of man. But what preceded all of them was the existence of the cherubs and the living creatures. And there's some debate among theologians as to exactly when the angels were created, but everyone would say they were created before the sixth day. So obviously some sort of pattern existed in the mind of God where he created the living creatures and the cherubs with these features, and then he duplicated those features in various uh, members of the uh, animal kingdom. So that's just something to think about, that um, when you get to heaven, we'll figure out what the answer to that is. But there's a connection there, and uh, someday we'll probably get to figure that out. So there are these four living creatures. Now, we have to identify who these four living creatures are. And to do this, um, well, let's go on, finish their description in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Now, this imagery of the eyes indicates knowledge. Uh, for example, the Old Testament talks about the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth. That's an anthropomorphism for the knowledge of God. Uh, this presence of the eyes indicates their knowledge, their wisdom, that they are their awareness of all that is transpiring in, uh, in history. And their function is to sing praises to God in heaven. And we're told in the second part of verse 8, they do not rest day or night. Obviously, there's neither day nor night in heaven. But John is simply expressing this in his own frame of reference that there's no cessation to their worship. They continuously sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Incidentally, this term, Lord God Almighty, is a term that is consistently 
used of God the Father throughout Revelation. And then verse 9 says that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that is the church age believers there, fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. And then they sing praises to God that He is worthy. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So this is that picture, the the dramatic image that we have of ongoing worship in heaven. So obviously, we're going to have to take some time to study the doctrine of worship, which will begin next time. But this time, we need to begin with just an understanding of the doctrine of angels, so that we can understand who these creatures are that we're uh, being introduced to in chapter 4 and through the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, this is just an introductory summation of the doctrine of angels. First point, both the Greek word angelos and the Hebrew word malach, are ter- uh, which would translate angel, are terms that mean simply messenger. Terms that mean simply messenger. The English word that we have for angel is just simply a transliteration of the Greek word angelos. It's a word that means messenger, and obviously this is a functional term that tells us something about their role and their purpose to serve as heavenly emissaries. The second thing we should note about angels is that the, the term describes a class of rational They think, they speak, they have individual identity. Uh, They're a class of rational, immaterial spirit beings. They're not made of flesh and blood as we are. They are not material. They're not, uh, they are non-material or immaterial spirit beings, which raises a lot of interesting questions. They were created by God to fulfill a variety of functions. Now, some of these we uh, see in the scriptures. They are mediators of divine revelation. For example, in Galatians 3.19 tells us that the giving of the Mosaic law was done through the mediation of angels on Mount Sinai. God the Father was present. Obviously, he wrote with his own finger, as it were, in an anthropomorphism. He wrote the tablets of the Ten Commandments. But angels were there. We're not told about them in Exodus. Uh, Paul tells us about them in Galatians 3.19. They're messengers of God. One is sent as a messenger to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verse 11. They are witnesses of God's justice. This is their role throughout the book of Revelation, is to serve as witnesses to the outworking of divine justice in human history. They are attendants to the divine throne. We see this in passages such as Ezekiel 1.5, Isaiah 6, 2 through 6, and Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And then last, they are overseers of the outworking of divine judgment. They carry out acts of judgment for God in human history. And this, again, is seen throughout the book of Revelation. So they are immaterial, uh, immaterial, rational creatures. They originally created higher than man, but man in the resurrection 
though created lower than the angels, will be over the angels. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we will judge the angels. So we will be in uh, the future in heaven, we will be elevated in a position of authority over the angels. Third point, angels can appear in human form. They can appear and apparently transform their immaterial bodies into material bodies that take on all of the attributes of flesh and blood. We go to Genesis chapter 18 to see this. We've studied this many times in the past. This is when God the Father comes and the company of two angels, probably, excuse me, it's God the Son, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ comes with, um, with two angels and they come to Abraham. They sit down. They sleep. Abraham prepares a meal for them. They eat. They drink. They rest. They're refreshed. For all practical purposes, they appear to be men. They are described in the text as men. And it is not until actually Genesis 19 that we discover that uh, the identity of these three and that two of them are then described as angels. Throughout the scriptures, they always appear as males. Now, there's a passage in Zechariah that some people always bring up, but I don't believe that relates to an angel. Uh, They always appear as males everywhere they show up in, in the Bible. Now, we see that at least three categories of angelic beings, the seraphim, the cherubim, and the living uh, beings or living creatures of, of uh, Revelation 4 have wings. Uh, the seraphim have six wings. The cherubim have four wings. Here, the living beings have six wings. So these indicate perhaps a position or ranking among the angels. Uh, several angels are described as flying in Daniel 9.21 as well as Luke 1.19. But not all angels appear with wings. So when you uh, go to the museum and you see the Renaissance art and you have the little uh, babies with wings and those are cherubs, that's not a biblical cherub. A biblical cherub was extremely fierce looking and, and scary looking. That's just a, a biblically illiterate, uh, uninformed artist's view. And then, of course, they always depict angels with wings and not all angels have wings. And they always depict angels with just two wings and we don't have uh, that depiction at all in the scripture. So don't build your theology off of artwork. Fourth, scripture reveals several classifications of angels. Several classifications of angels. And cherubim are the highest class of angels. Lucifer, the pre-fall name which we use to identify Satan... Uh, was of this class. He was a cherub. He was the highest of the cherubs. And cherubs are identified in Scripture in association with the glory, the holiness, and the majesty of God. They are described in uh, Ezekiel chapter uh, 1, verses 5 through 14. And even though the name cherub is not used in Ezekiel chapter 1, in Ezekiel 10, verse 20, uh, we see the connection is made. Ezekiel says, this is the living creature. Same terminology we have in Revelation 4. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kabar. 
and I knew they were cherubs or cherubim. So in Ezekiel chapter 10, we finally have the identification of these creatures that we see in Ezekiel chapter chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5 we read, also from within it, he, he sees this, Ezekiel sees this vision of the throne of God. And he says, within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. See the difference between the living creatures of Revelation 4 and these living creatures? There you had four living creatures, each having a distinct face. Here you have uh, each of these living creatures, these cherubs, had four faces. Each had four wings. So cherubs have four wings. It goes on to describe, uh, describe them from that point on. And that is a distinct description from the second category, which are called seraphs or seraphim. Uh, the term seraph in Scripture refers to burning. So these are the burning ones. They're uh, angelic incendiaries. They're viewed as, as white-hot flames almost. And of course, whenever we see lamps or flames, uh, we not only think of illumination, we think of judgment and purification. And so they are also associated with the holiness of God. And they are seen in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is the vision that Isaiah has of the throne of God. And in Isaiah chapter 6 we read... In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. The seraphim have six wings. Cherubs have four wings. The living creatures, while they are similar to the cherubs, have are, are yet distinct. They have uh, six wings as well. And it is the living creatures in Revelation 4 that sing a song similar to that of the seraphs in Isaiah 6.3. One crying to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, or the Lord of the armies. The word for hosts is that word we sing in the uh, hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Lord Sabaoth. That's a Hebrew word meaning armies. The uh, more antiquated use was hosts. But it is a term that refers to, uh, it's a military term referring to armies. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So these are the key passages. For We have the cherubs, the seraphs, and then we have the living beings. Even though that term is used to describe the cherubs, uh, the, the cherubs in uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, it is also used of these four living beings in Revelation chapter uh, 4 and in chapter 14. They may be a variety of cherub due to their similarity, but they may also be distinct. Just because they're similarities doesn't mean they're identical. We then have Michael. Michael is designated as the archangel in Jude 9. There's only one archangel. He is now the leader of the angels. He is the primary or leader angel. That's the idea of Arche. 
and he's mentioned in Jude chapter 9. And then the other angel that is mentioned or identified in Scripture by name. Now, there are some others that if you come out of a Roman Catholic tradition, you heard some other names, but those aren't from the Scripture, the canon of Scripture that we have. They're uh, based on tradition and other sources. Uh, Gabriel is the only other named angel, and he is the messenger who is, uh, announces significant events related to Israel, related to uh, Israel. He announces the birth of the Messiah. He, he warns uh, Joseph. He, is used, uh, he appears in the Old Testament uh, with Daniel, announcing certain key events related to, uh, ev- related to Israel's history. So this just introduces us to the major characters. Next time we'll come back, we'll look at more aspects of these living beings and how they're used in the book of Revelation. We need to tie some of these things together. And then we, of course, need to get into this subject of worship. Worship is very important, as we see. This is something we will be engaged in as believer priests throughout uh, our future eternity in the Millennial Kingdom as well as in Heaven. Worship has become somewhat controversial today. We have to address some things related to that. Churches are splitting over contemporary worship versus traditional worship, and a lot of uh, things are happening, and the term worship has changed its meaning in contemporary usage in recent years. So all of these are things we need to address in the coming weeks. So now we're pretty much set the stage, at least as far as chapter 4 is concerned, and next time we'll come back to look at the worship of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time that we can see this picture of the worship of yourself in heaven, that we may be reminded that that is part of our purpose as creatures is to bring honor and glory to you, and that that honor and glory is first and foremost uh, related to you as a creator and second as the one who provided a plan of salvation and provided a redeemer for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death and that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There's nothing that we can do to gain salvation, to merit your approbation. There's nothing that we can do to work or earn salvation. It's a free gift. Jesus paid the penalty for us on the cross. And all we are required to do is to accept that by trusting in Him as our Savior. At the instant we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we're justified, we're redeemed, we're born again, we have eternal life. And this can never be taken from us. Father, we pray that as we study these things in Revelation that they would give us a, uh, your perspective on history, your perspective on our lives, that we might not be so caught up in just the details of our own lives that we forget that there is a divine purpose in all that is going on and that ultimately all of human history is moving to that great time in the future when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.
Father, we pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.